while the clouds roll back and the stars fill the night that's when i'm gonna stand up take my people Hello, and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, I will uh, be looking at more of W.E.B. Du Bois's uh, Black Reconstruction in America, uh, specifically chapters 9 and 10, which um, um, chapter 9, The Price of Disaster, covers mostly the, the 15th Amendment, um, and then with chapter 10, we get into what I think is the real intent of this book, which is to look at what, uh, what African-Americans after slavery and with the, the arrival of suffrage rights did with that power, right? Because that's the heart of the, the Dunning School that he's criticizing. So just to remind us, if the Dunning School of Reconstruction Historiography, which is still not um, entirely purged from popular memory, and I, I think even some, some, you know, some education. I think it's getting better, um, but you know, still a lot of people kind of cling to that idea of Reconstruction of being like a problematic era. Um, the Dunning School basically said it more explicitly in, in a more racialized way, saying, uh, you know, you basically took voting rights away from the traditional rulers of the South and gave it to people who were incompetent to hold power, and that led to corruption and other kinds of issues, right? And of course, this is the beginning sort of the Gilded Age, and, and there was a lot of scandals in Washington, and, and you know, there's, you know, that's not, that's part of the whole picture, uh, what the Dunning School is looking at. They weren't, they were doing archival research. They were not lying about like the facts they dug up. It's just how they interpreted them. They interpreted them in a, in a very narrow way. And Du Bois is saying, no, we got to look at the whole picture of what African-Americans did with, with power. And he does this by going kind of state by state in the, in the second half of the book. Um, you know, it's not like one chapter per state. Uh, South Carolina gets his own chapter. Then there's a chapter on Mississippi and Louisiana. Um, then uh, Alabama, Georgia, and Florida. Then he looks at the border states and Virginia and things. Now, the titles of these chapters, and then partially this is looking ahead, is for Mississippi, Louisiana, and Carolina, two chapters that look at this, he calls them the black proletariat in South Carolina or the black proletariat in Mississippi and Louisiana. Just in case we forgot, uh, just a quick reminder that we are dealing with a, a Marxist text, or at least this is the beginning of Du Bois's uh, exploration of Marxist theory, and he would, of course, remain a Marxist until his, his death in Ghana, I believe it was. But when he gets to uh, Georgia, Florida, and Alabama, he calls it the white proletariat. Now, why does he do this? Well, it's because here you had a, you didn't have a black majority, right? So the focus is going to be different. So those have to be studied differently. Um, and then the dual for labor control on border and frontier looks at North Carolina and Virginia and the border states. And so there, of course, you also don't have a black majority. So he starts with the black majority um, states because you thought places where black people would have the most political power. Uh, obviously, South Carolina is kind of seen 
in these debates, and it was seen by the Dunning School as a archetypical um, example of what happens if you give if you give these former slaves um, power. Now we see this in the Dunning School um, works that he consulted for writing this. For instance, uh, you have uh, James Pikes, the prostate state, South Carolina under Negro government, or John Reynolds, Reconstruction in South Carolina. Now, both of these books are put in Du Bois's bibliography as propaganda. Uh, basically, he calls them vengeful or deceitful. Um, or seeing the North as vengeful and deceitful, seeing the Negro as stupid. The South is right about Reconstruction. So he just says these were kind of propaganda, but they focus on South Carolina. And that's true of a lot of these books. I haven't read much of this stuff. Um, you know, but I think Dunning, Reconstruction, Political and Economic, focuses a lot on South Carolina, too. Um, John Porter Hollis, The Early Period of Reconstruction of South Carolina. Um, so South Carolina gets a disproportionate amount of the scholarship um, because this is going to be where you, you have the strongest black majority and the clearest example of black governance. And so Du Bois takes that on right away, and he wants to challenge his audience, and of course many of his readers would have been black scholars or, or just the black public who uh, need to be reminded of their own history, but of course he's also challenging academic historians for their, uh, their clear uh, you know, faults in their, in their scholarship. Um, but anyways, before we get there, we're gonna, we got to deal with chapter nine. Um, so th yeah, this breaks the book almost right down the middle. Um, the stuff that comes before, and then the, the, the focus on state by state um, experiences. The Price of Disaster is kind of the end almost of a section. Uh, in fact, if I wasn't breaking this up 100 pages at a time, I probably should have covered this last episode and broken up in a slightly different way. Um, this is mostly about vote, the vote. As we talked about last time, the 14th Amendment did not explicitly give the right to vote to anyone. It just says that if you restrict the right to vote to, to a certain population of men, you lose a proportionate representation in, in Congress. It undoes the three-fifths clause and makes it a, essentially a zero-fifths clause. You know, but that didn't on its own prevent a state from like biting that bullet. And, and of course, that'd be a really different situation in a state like South Carolina, which was majority black compared to, you know, the border states of Virginia or a state like that, where, where even if that representation was limited, you know, and I don't know how much the, this 14th Amendment clause was actually used, how many senators or Congress people would have been, were lost out um, because of this. Uh, the point is it didn't really work. And so this leads to the passage of the 15th Amendment, with explicit, which explicitly gives voting rights to to all men. Uh, now, this, of course, is problematic for some feminists and early suffragists because they were saying, well, why are you now, just like you, the first mention of slavery in the Constitution was the abolition of slavery. So that's good. But now the first explicit uh, granting of voting rights in the Constitution, because no part of the Constitution granted the right to vote explicitly, it had equal protection, things like that, but no. It, you know, it talks about how to elect a president and all, but there's nothing there about voting rights. That's a state issue. But the 15th Amendment is the first time you have an explicit statement of voting rights in the Constitution, and it limits it to men. So feminists are saying, well, why, why limit it at that point? Others, you know, some said to make this about gender, to make this about women's rights would be a poison pill. 
ruin it for, um, and there was a break in the feminist movement on this very issue. Is it, um, anyways, so the, the subtitle for The Price of Disaster is, The Price of the Disaster of Slavery in the Civil War was a necessity of quickly assimilating into American democracy a mass of ignorant laborers, in whose hands alone for the moment lay the power of preserving the ideals of popular government, of overthrowing the slave economy, and establishing upon it in an industry primarily for the profit of the workers. It was this prize which, in the end, America refused to pay, and today suffers for that refusal, end quote. So he is doing a lot in this chapter, actually. Now, if you do look at like the plot of the chapter, it's really about the 15th Amendment, but he's got this broader theme, which he hinted at earlier, where, he's, where he talks about this alliance between the abolitionist um, radical Republicans um, who wanted voting rights and civil rights for blacks and northern capital interests, right? Uh, so the Republican Party became this kind of joint thing. But now the question is, if we give voting rights to all these working class Southerners, blacks and whites, you are going to remake democracy. That on its own is going to remake democracy. And if you do that, what could the possibilities have been? Like, what could the possibilities of an actual democracy in America, a biracial democracy, or interracial democracy, maybe a better word, an interracial democracy, what would that consequence, what would it have been for America? And Du Bois here says it would have been actually kind of socialism, right? An industry primarily for the profit of the workers, which is one way to define socialism, I guess. I think that's what Du Bois is trying to do here. Um, so in a way, democracy had to be sacrificed for capital, right? So if you, by this point, haven't figured out yet that we're really talking about capitalism, not just about the end of slavery, not just about reconstruction itself, but really about a hinge point in history in which capitalism could have been challenged. You know it now. I mean, it's, 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 it's very, very clear uh, at this point. Now, he, he sort of begins this chapter... Um, talking, kind of revisiting old themes here of how democracy as it's being framed in the Reconstruction era is being associated with Northern capital. And of course, that's what's going to ultimately be challenged by the actual implementation of democracy in the South. It's one thing for Northern business interests to support the Republican Party in its efforts to pass something like the 14th Amendment. It's a very different thing to actually empower uh, the workers of the South. Johnson attacked the most powerful enemy before him in his effort to consolidate and lead the West. That enemy was not abolition democracy, as he falsely conceived it. It was the tremendous new and rising power of organized wealth and capital industry in the North. End quote. Now, remember in the last chapter, we spent a lot of time talking about Johnson as sort of a tragic figure here um, who eventually turned his back on this quote-unquote abolition democracy. Um, in his opposition to Northern capital, right? Um, and the who was sacrificed for that was basically forced an alliance with the, the wealthy, the landed class in the South. Um, and, but ultimately, that's a problem here. The abolitionists were not, Du Bois tells us, the enemies of, of capital, right? But the results of their revolution would be so really, this price of disaster here that he's getting at is really the price of, well, for him, it is a disaster, the failure of democracy in, in the United States. But it comes about because of this constant effort to try to frame and limit 
what is trying to be accomplished in Reconstruction rather than just kind of embrace the, the revolution for what it was. So he goes here and he talks about, like, what's public opinion now? Where's the actual public opinion like in the United States? One, okay, uh, slaves must be protected, right, because they helped save the Union. Two, uh, the freedom must be a protected status, so blacks have to be protected on their own merits. Uh, the status of freedom, so the end of slavery needs to be enshrined, that's accepted. Um, then he goes on, the legal status of freedom without actual civil rights would mean almost nothing. So there has to be some kind of civil rights backing that up, like maybe voting rights or some other kind of civil protections. Again, this is like the mainstream public opinion uh, about Reconstruction. Next, the Freedmen's Bureau and the Civil Rights Bill represented an attempt at federal intervention to enforce freedom by federal law. The South, of course, opposes that. And then this leads to the 14th Amendment, which is the, the, the legal power of Congress to enforce civil rights protections. That's kind of where we're at in, in 1868. Um, and it seems, I mean, there's nothing bad in that, right? It's just, it's framed it to, to always take baby steps towards uh, greater and greater rights. So it can always sort of be stopped. I, I think that's his kind of anxiety about this. Now, going into the story here that's actually presented in the book, we next, the next kind of step in Reconstruction history after the 14th Amendment is, of course, the Reconstruction Bill. The 14th Amendment gives Congress the right to do this, so Congress does indeed pass the Reconstruction Bill, which, as you probably know, divides the South into military districts, maintains occupation, and does those things I just kind of listed out uh, that the 14th Amendment sort of enshrines, uh, protect the freedmen, make sure there's no return to slavery, and defend civil rights. What's not there is explicitly voting rights yet, right? Um, now the question is, is like, is this, um, is all this constitutional? Now obviously it is, but there's a, like a broader question Du Bois is trying to get at here about, like, it's not, not really about constitutionality because the 14th Amendment does make that not really an issue, but it's what's, like, should we follow the intent? Should we care about this at all? Um, is a discussion he gets into uh, on, my, on page 336 of my version. Uh, and he's kind of saying, and then here's where Du Bois comes off as quite radical. Is he kind of says, like, we probably shouldn't care that much about what the Constitution actually says about this stuff. Um, no more idiotic program, he writes, could be laid down than to require our people to follow a written rule of government 90 years old if that rule has been definitely broken in order to preserve the unity of government and to destroy an economic anachronism. In such a crisis, legalists may insist that consistency with precedent is more important than firm and far-sighted rebuilding, but manifestly it is not. Rule following, legal procedure, and political consistency are not more important than right justice and plain common sense. Through the cobwebs of political subtlety, Stevens crashed and said that military rule must continue in the South until order was restored, democracy established, and the political power built on slavery smashed. Further than this, he and Sumner knew that land and education for blacks and white labor was necessary. So that's right there. Like, we had to go beyond what the 14th Amendment allowed. And how do you do that? The only way you can do that is through enshrined voting rights. And this is going to have to be imposed on the South, right? Because there is a clear reactionary force against voting rights for, for Southern blacks and for poor whites, obviously. I think Du Bois is quite good at making sure we always see that 
Disenfranchisement affected both poor whites and blacks. It was a class war, not just a racial war um, against the former slaves. Now we get the the, the reconstruct or the uh, the impeachment uh, drama, which came out of uh, Johnson opposing the Reconstruction Act and the Fifteenth Amendment. Now remember, now we we've had lots of impeachments recently. It's like it seems like every president is like doomed to be impeached in this day and age. Um, they were talking about impeaching Obama. Uh, Clinton was impeached. They were talking about impeaching Bush. Uh, Trump was impeached twice. And now they're trying to impeach Biden. It just seems that's like part of presidential politics now, for better or for worse. But up to this point, there was only Johnson, right? Nixon left office before they could, you know, the impeachment procedures could even go forward. So this is, you know, at the time this was written and until like the 90s, it was like the only impeachment uh, in American history. And, and remember, Johnson kind of passed the trial in the Senate by, by like one vote or something. Now, he doesn't spend much time on it because I think he thinks that's not the big important issue. Much more important is the, like the rhetorical debate going on in the backdrop of all this. He says, one cannot study Reconstruction without first frankly facing the facts of universal lying, of deliberate and unbound attempts to prove a case and win a dispute and preserve economic mastery and political domination by besmirching the character, motives, and common sense of every single person who dared disagree with the dominant philosophy of the White South. The campaign to slander against carpetbaggers rose to climax, which included every Northern person who defended the Negro and every Northern person of the South who was connected with the Army or Freedmen's Bureau, end quote. So... Even before voting rights were established, there seems to be this propaganda campaign against anyone who is supportive of, of black rights, right? Um, and this reaction is setting in. The South, the white South, and by that I really mean the, the planter class, the ruling class of the white South, starts putting up all this infrastructure to protect itself from um, democracy, essentially, right? First, building up a narrative, right, uh, against black rights, attacking the people who support it as carpetbaggers or, or, or scallywags or, or just like northern intruders, right? That's the idea of the carpetbagger. Some northerner who comes down just to take advantage of the south, not real, like hypocritical, um, or maybe just, you know, oppressive by nature. Um, scallywags, I guess, were more seen as like race traitors. Um, that doesn't seem to be the focus here, though. Um, there's limiting limiting on um, interstate migration because many black people were leaving, going west, going going north, going um, just to other places, just to get away from their old masters' lands. Uh, re, you know, Du Bois doesn't say a lot about this here, but recent historians of Reconstruction have emphasized a lot on this. Uh, there's been a whole bunch of books written just about migration in the post Civil War South up to and including the Great Migration. We know about the Exodusers, uh, blacks going to the West, taking part in the Westward Migration uh, that was going on at the same time. So there's a lot of, of migration, but that's being stripped. It was a battle, he writes, between oligarchy whose wealth and power had been based on land and slaves on the one hand, and on the other, oligarchy built on machines and hired labor, end quote. Uh, and Again, remember, he's coming at this very Marxist. So the Marxist, classical Marxist view is you have feudalism, right, which the Old South, kind of represented by the Old South, land and slaves, an aristocracy, 
that is replaced then by capitalism, which can then be replaced by a more democratic socialist world at some point in the future. Right? So he's got this kind of idea of you have to fight this battle first, the battle between labor or between land and aristocracies and capital kind of has to be fought out before you can move to actual democracy. But you know, what kind of throws a wrench into that is the actual implementation of democracy in the South with the 15th Amendment. Um, and he actually takes on the problem of the poor whites here being kind of the wild card in this whole narrative. And, and I think there's a lot to that. Um, you know, the, the whites who voted Republican were key to Reconstruction politics in the states that didn't have a black majority. And even in the states that did have a black majority, getting uh, the, the poor whites to support the Republican Party helped keep them in power. All right. Um, now, the way he goes at it in this chapter is he really wants to talk about the labor movement and the debates within the labor movement over slavery and Reconstruction. And he, the different labor unions seem to have different approaches. This is still the early years of the American labor movement. This is before the AFL. This is before the CIO, obviously, before the IWW. You have a lot. Of, you do have a national labor union, uh, which had a meeting in Baltimore in 1866. And what they said about the quote-unquote Negro problem is quite um, limited, it seems, according to Bois' mind anyways. They don't see that as the key struggle to be had. So there is this kind of question of like, where's labor going to be? National labor movements, not just Southern poor white labor. Um, and some discussion of interracial unionism, but kind of limited. Uh, not equal black representation in these unions. Um, but they knew that the black worker is now going to be an issue in their movements, right, in a way they weren't before when, it, when they were in slavery. Quote, American labor le leaders tried to emphasize the fact that here was a new element, not new in the sense that it had not been there. It had been there all the time. But new in the sense that the Negro worker must now be taken account of, both in his own interest and particularly to their interest. He was a competitor and a prospective underbidder. Then difficulties emerged. Now, of course, just to jump in, the, the cliche view of the black as a scab, of course, is something that has uh, been an issue with labor politics for much of post-Civil War history. Um, it got in the way of interracial unionism. Is it fair? Uh, well, black replacement workers, of course, these happen, but that was often bosses manipulating racial tensions to undermine interracial unionism. Where we see interracial unionism thrive, we see much more success in the Southern labor movement. Anyways, then the difficulties appeared. The white worker did not want the Negro in his unions, did not believe in him as a man, dodged the question, and when he appeared at conventions, asked him to organize separately. That is outside the real labor movement. In spite of this fact, this was a contradiction of all sound labor policy, end quote. Now, of course, Du Bois writing this in the 1930s knows this was a, 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 a fault. This was part of the disaster. Remember, this chapter is called The Price of Disaster. And it's going to be the failure of democracy to be fully implemented. And one aspect of that is the, the lack of interracial uh, unionism. 
So we end up with kind of separate black labor unions, organizations, and of course that's a theme in Reconstruction politics too, and just in historiography of Reconstruction, that you have black people creating their own institutions in the South, their own schools, their own independent churches, built on their experiences in slavery, right? As slaves, they were responsible for the education of their own people, largely. Religious life was was largely under their control, even if they were being propagandized to by the by the masters. You know, they still kept their own traditions. And reconstruction politics kind of kept that tradition along. But I think Du Bois here is seeing a lost opportunity of forming more interracial organizations. And of course, that's a big part of his politics throughout his life. Um, but he says, like, what are they calling for? What do, when we look at what black labor unions are actually calling for, these separate unions, um, it's interesting stuff. I mean, it's really, really powerful, interesting stuff that could have been transformative for the country. They recommended the establishment of cooperative workshops, building and loan associations, the purchase of land as a remedy against the exclusion of other workshops on account of color, as a means of furnishing employment, um, education. Uh, providing education for people. Um, this is um, like labor must be made more scarce. To do that, you must make laborers landowners. So Congress should give land to the South to raise the value, the price of of labor. Um, this is populist stuff. I mean, if you you don't maybe if you're not aware of the populist movement, you can't see it. But if you have read Democratic Promise by Lawrence Godwin or read pretty much anything about the populists in the 1890s, they're calling for a lot of the similar stuff, right? Cooperative buying and selling, talking for, you know, government intervention in, in raising the v prices of things. For the, for the populists, it was the price of, of commodities, of farming commodities. So they had that sub-treasury system. Um, they wanted the free coinage of silver to raise prices. Um, here, it's the concern is labor, and they see a way to doing that as land reform. So, you know, he's not, as he's not explicit here. I don't think if, I don't know how much Du Bois knew about the populist movement or thought about it much, but what's being called here is very similar to what the populists would call for later. It's just doing it through a, a labor lens and not an agrarian lens so much. Uh, to get another example of this, we have the Colored National Labor Union uh, passing their uh, program. Uh, quote to you know to to bring legislation that would secure quality before the law for an enforcement for labor contracts to make sure people aren't screwed in their contracts to secure funds from bankers and capitalists to aid in establishing cooperative associations um, to overcome the opposition of white mechanics who excluded them from their unions and shops so interracial unionism to organize state labor conventions that's just organizational to organize where there were seven or more mechanics, artisans, or laborers in any particular branch of an industry, separate labor associations, to encourage independent efforts in creating capital, buying tools, building houses, forging iron and making brick, and, and homesteading. Right? Again, the, the concern here is like worker control of production and ra like raising wages by through land reform, in a sense. Because as long as blacks didn't have access to land, they were going to be a proletariat that didn't have anything else to offer and that would drive down prices of labor. Now, of course, all of these goals is going to run contrary to what the South wants, and we're reminded of that. Uh, they want a continuous, steady labor to produce high-priced crops at low wages, lowest possible wages. Um, and 
so he he spends a lot of time talking about the labor movement and the formation of a separate black union and and then the 15th amendment sort of just becomes an addendum we we see du bois here moving from the national politics to black activism um which is kind of where the book starts obviously i mean one of the first chapters is the general strike but there's this long section uh, about a third of the book where he's focusing on the national politics of reconstruction um, but by this chapter the price of disaster he starts shifting our focus to away from that like that's not really where we need to focus on he's saying what we really need to center our attention to and zero in on is the is the black worker and what they're going to do now the 15th amendment is key in unleashing this potential in some southern states um, but anyways that's sort of how the chapter ends then with the uh, passage of the 15th amendment uh, to conclude here he says some americans think and say that the nation freed the black slave and gave him the vote and that unable to use it intelligently he lost it this is not so to win the war america freed the slave and armed them and the threat to arm the mass of black workers in the Confederacy stopped the war. Nor did this fact for a moment deny that some prophet and martyrs demanded first and last the abolition of slavery as the sole object of the war at any cost of life and wealth. So too, some Americans demanded not simply physical freedom, but votes, land, and education for blacks, not only in order to comp compass the economic emancipation of labor, but also as the fulfillment of American democratic ideals. But most Americans use the Negro to defend their own economic interests. And refusing him adequate land and a real education and even common justice deserted him shamelessly as soon as the selfish interests were safe. So that's the labor movement. He's kind of calling out there. Nor does this for a moment deny the unselfish and far-seeing Americans, poor as well as rich, by supplying public schools when the Negroes demanded them and establishing higher schools to train teachers, save the Negro from being entirely re-enslaved or exterminated in the unusual and cowardly renewal of war. Um, so that's how he ends this chapter. Then we get to chapter 10, the black proletariat in South Carolina. Um, and he actually calls out here, he puts an asterisk after proletariat and has a footnote where he actually says here, the record of Negro worker during reconstruction presents an opportunity to study inductively the Marxian theory of the state. When I first called this chapter the dictatorship of the black, black proletariat in South Carolina, but I had brought, it, brought to my attention that this would not be correct since universal suffrage does not lead to a real dictatorship until workers use their votes consciously to rid themselves of the domination of private capital, end quote. So he's saying, well, I can't quite, you know, I, my Marxist friends here corrected me on this. Can't quite say it's a dictatorship of the proletariat. But you can tell he sort of wants to. He wants to say, black workers did something pretty awesome here. And so pay attention and, and listen. They did it because they had the voting rights. Um, and what they do is kind of amazing. Um, this, so this is really where the book sort of gets real on its argument. He, in fact, he reminds us by the very first um, paragraph here, uh, he mentions Burgess. And Burgess is one of our historians that is is uh, under the category of standard anti-Negro, authors who see Negro to be subhuman and congenitally unfitted for citizenship. He's referring specifically to the book Reconstruction and the Constitution. Uh, 
yeah, that's the book. Uh, he quotes it. So he's, he's right away taking on one of the most more, more notorious, in his view, anti-black um, historians of the era. And the quote he takes on, this is quoting Burgess here. This is Du Bois quoting Burgess. It was a great wrong to civilization to put the white race in the South under the domination of the Negro race. This was in a history book this, that was popular and read and taken seriously by academics. Um, that's what Du Bois is dealing with. So when we talk about the racist historiography at the time, it wasn't like closeted, hidden stuff. It wasn't coded language. It, there wasn't gaslighting involved. It was just they straight up said, like, South Carolina is a great example of of the folly of giving black people democracy. Or the folly of giving America democracy, really, is what it comes down to. Because if you don't give, don't incorporate blacks into the democracy, you don't have democracy. You just have a, a you have a hair invoke democracy. Um, now, he has a lot of fun here early on in this chapter, actually saying, well, what do people historically actually think about democracy? And not much, right? Remember, democracy is new. He's kind of saying we've never even really had democracy. It's always been caged by other forces or reaction has crushed it, like in the French case. But in the United States, never really had democracy. Uh, so this is a new experiment. The 15th Amendment is a revolutionary document because it's trying something that hasn't really been tried before. Um, but it'll... It's not going to last, obviously. That's, that's, of course, the whole problem that Du Bois is trying to unpack here. Um, but, you know, well, anyways, um, the, the chapter begins before the 15th Amendment is passed with the conditions in South Carolina. Um, of course, a black majority state at the time. I think we actually get the numbers at one point. Um, yeah, before the Civil War, 400,000 blacks, 300,000 whites, more or less. Uh, the beginning of the 19th century was 200,000 whites and 150,000 blacks. Um, it was a black majority back in the colonial period, and then I guess whites overtook, and then at the time of the Civil War, black majority. And I don't know what it is now. I think it's kind of divided down the middle. But... Um, where are we at here? So yeah, he's talk, he, he starts by talking about the reaction of the white ruling class to try to re-enslave black people uh, and limit their rights. But once you had the Reconstruction Law, which you know began the organization of, of black voters and the passage of the 15th Amendment, then uh, the power of the property class was taken from them. And that's really where we can start to begin, like, what did they actually do? And much of this chapter is just that, a list of the things that um, South Carolina did in Reconstruction. Um, and it's, it's pretty great. If much of this chapter is just letting black politicians speak, I think that's an important part of this book. I've talked about before how much of this book is quotes, long quotes, and I think the reason for that is just... It gives access to the sources you're using. It's one reason the book's so long, right? I think if this was written today, it would be 200 pages, not six, 700 pages, because, you know, it wouldn't include these quotes. Um, it's just not what historians do anymore. Unfortunately, maybe. I, I kind of like this, this uh, 
you know, putting your evidence right there in the text, not hiding it in the footnotes. Because footnotes are really, sh there's usually just a list less than a page long for most chapters, and there's not much detail to them. Well, the end notes, they're chapter end notes. Um, the, the footnotes are, sometimes he has interesting footnotes, but um, they're asterisks. <laughs> pointing you to the bottom of the page. The, the cha each chapter has a page of endnotes, but those endnotes are usually just, you see he's just re usually used based on four or five sources. He kind of keeps using them, but he puts his evidence in the text. That's, that's the point I'm trying to make. Um, so anyway, so as a writer, Du Bois is letting the black politicians and the newly um, uh, empowered blacks speak, which as I suggest, I think is very important. But what else does they actually do? What do they pass? Um, well, of course, one goal, and he does call out Sherman's field order, uh, which calls for homesteading, former slaves. And that, of course, was never fully implemented, but it, it remains a bit of a dream. So um, we have homesteading laws um, with... Uh, they rewrite the Constitution to uh, end racial discrimination in the Constitution. Uh, public schools, militias. So basically desegregation is implemented here. Um, the, so that's, there's a lot here about the Constitution that, that has passed. Uh, the new con I don't know how long they remained intact. I know that some of these Constitutions remain. They were just kind of undermined. Um, others were explicitly overthrown at the end of Reconstruction and replaced or at the beginning of the Jim Crow era. Um, but that's really important. R expanding rights for women uh, is talked about. So the fears of the feminists is that if you give votes explicitly to black, to, to all men, you're eliminating whites or what women's rights. True, shouldn't have been done, I suppose. But uh, that said, these Reconstruction governments did consciously expand the rights of women. Um, for instance, property of married women could not be sold for their husband's debts. And for the first time in history, the state was given a divorce law. Um, no distinction in race and color Two, uh, education is the big thing. Du Bois thinks education is super, super important. He thinks it's, uh, going to solve a lot of the problems. We know throughout his career, he's been a big advocate of it for it. And he himself was super educated, severely educated. Um, so the common school system is one, and he's got a whole chapter later on called the founding of the public school, um, which I think is just going to sum up what, what the states have, are already doing, but we see the establishment of common public schools for blacks and whites. Um, paying for that with taxation on the white landowning class. And do we see the fruits of this? We do. Uh, he mentions, for instance, um, uh, the first black man admitted to the bar in Pennsylvania um, had been part of the Freedmen's Bureau, right? Um, ultimately, the Constitution is passed, uh, adopted in 1867. Uh, 70,000 people voted for it. And it was just on a state of 5,500,000. I'm not sure how many of those were voters. Of course, women weren't voting, children weren't voting. And there were a lot of disenfranchised former Confederates. Um, 27,000 voted against it, 35,000 abs uh, abstained. So 
in South Carolina, we had roughly 140,000, 130,000 voters. And of those, a clear majority voted for it, right? Even if you include the abstainers with the people who voted against it, it's a majority. Um, and what is motivating, what's behind this constitution? Well, Du Bois says it's an economic revolution. The economic revolution with reconstruction involved overshadowed and guided all thought and action. Usury laws have been repealed by the planters and interest rates rose to 25%. Banks commonly charged 18 to 24%. Um, this caused all sorts of impoverishment and they blamed uh, reconstruction for it. So instead they rework the the, like this, the financing system and the banking system to create a more prosperous economy. Very Keynesian things are discussed here. In fact, before Keynes wrote, before the Great Depression saw the New Deal and the living out of these, I think Du Bois is sort of suggesting here that these Reconstruction governments actually had faced similar problems that we're facing now in the Great Depression and solved them through, you know, policies that would prove to be successful almost a century later. Now, one thing that has to be done by this government is reestablishing um, a tax policy because taxes, the Civil War destroyed taxation in the South, we're told, right? And after the Civil War and in the early Reconstruction era, there was like not, like taxes just simply couldn't be collected. Value of property was up in the air. Without slavery, who knows what this property is worth? Um, but you had to pay for education, construction, uh, aid to former slaves, all these things. And so taxation had to be increased to pay for these new expenses. So that required a whole new kind of survey of the land and a new uh, you know, levy on, on the wealthy, right? Um, of course, we also have inflation too. So the, the Civil War was too disruptive to the economy. So you had to kind of have a fresh start. And that's important because, again, the in interpretation of Reconstruction is that it was a folly that these people couldn't govern. And in fact, Du Bois is saying they not only could govern, they governed in a kind of the most difficult circumstances, you know, in the face of recession and depression and, uh, and the incorporation of all these former slaves who didn't have an education, who needed an education, who needed to be incorporated into uh, the economy and the, in the civic life. Uh, and they were able to do that. Um, now, yeah, they did it. They taxed the wealthy to do that, which that's how it's done, right? You know, the wealthy complain too much about taxes. When it's like the alternative is like kind of a barbarism, which is sort of what we had here uh, before. Um, so in 68, we get the free common school system was organized uh, per and then permanently established in 1870. Uh, relief to blacks and whites poor blacks and whites, um, land purchasing by states. Again, this is like something we see in the progressive, or not the, the populist movement, where uh, government buys land and resells it to people at, a, at, at rates that, can, that, can be a, that they can afford. Um, and then we got the building of the railroads. Now he admits a lot of the corruption everyone complains about when they look at these reconstruction governments comes out of the railroad building, which was a national problem. It wasn't just a southern problem. It was all across the nation. You had corruption in the building of railroads. So he's kind of like, yeah, you're, you're, you're not looking at the full picture of what was achieved here. Now, ultimately, I think the, the Dunning School is a bit 
not that they they didn't do archival research or they're straight up lying. They're a little dishonest about why they're upset about Reconstruction. I think Du Bois is trying to say it wasn't just black civil rights that bothered them. It's actually what they were doing with it. And the fact that they were moving towards a more just democratic, you know, a, a, a society of shared prosperity, um, and they actually took steps towards that, is really what it was about, ultimately. That if, if black leaders really had been as incompetent as they're portrayed in the Reconstruction School, why overthrow them? right? That's what they wanted. They wanted economic chaos. They wanted the barbarism. So if it wasn't about improving things, right, why the effort to take away black voting rights, right? If anything, it would just prove your, your racial assumptions, your racist assumptions. I think, no, it's like that they were actually doing something with their power and doing it effectively and actually changing things in a positive way that we get this kind of the, the, the white South flipping out on this issue uh, or the, uh, flipping out on Reconstruction and trying to over, overturn it. Uh, we also have here discussion of the union of poor whites and blacks in South Carolina's government because a lot of what the black leaders did in the, at the state level helped whites as well as blacks. Um, so... That's it. It's a great chapter. It really is. It's, it's really the heart of the argument, I think. Uh, and it's a great place to start. When we look at other states, we're not going to have nearly as much of a black majority, and we're going to have uh, black minorities. So reconstruction politics must necessarily come out differently in those states. But anyways, next chapter, we will look at those states. We'll look at uh, Mississippi and Louisiana in Chapter 11, and we'll look at Alabama, Georgia, and Florida in Chapter 12. Um, uh, basically, we're going to get uh, different stories. Obviously, Du Bois puts these in different chapters because he thinks they tell slightly different stories. But yeah, it'll be two more chapters uh, looking at other states. Then we'll uh, come towards the end of the book. We have, we have three more episodes ahead of us. Um, so anyways, uh, I guess that's it for now. Um, thanks for listening. Let me know what you think. Leave a comment, send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And I'll see you next time. So I'm gonna stay.